Okay, today's Bible reading is from Judges. We're looking in chapter 6 and then in chapter 7. So chapter 6, uh, verses 36 to 40. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now chapter 7 from verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. This is the word of God. Now most of you don't know that we've been in the middle of a sermon series about broken people and a whole God. Broken people and a complete, true, truthful God. And so as we were coming up on this day, I I thought to myself, I'm not quite sure I want to continue with this series. I'm I'm not sure how that'll that'll fit in as we're celebrating 125 years of ministry happening and and people are here to celebrate. And I'm going to talk about brokenness, people being broken, and how that might not sit well with people. And so I really thought about doing something different. And then I went back and read the anniversary of the, the 100th anniversary document and the history that was written. And it was very interesting for me to sit back and read that history. Because within that history, there are lots of men and women who went to Bible college. There were missionaries that were sent out from here. But there were also churches that were started. And none of them exist anymore. There were ministries that happened. And none of those happen anymore. There are people who were part of this church and have long gone away and found some other thing to fill the hole in their life that they thought they had and have gone away from the church. As a matter of fact, at one point, this church really felt like maybe it wasn't going to continue to exist, that it was going to be gone, that the people gathered here would have to give up the building and be absorbed into something else. And In fact, by the grace of God, Subiaco Church of Christ came and gathered the people in here. And by the grace of God... There was this weird American that showed up in Fremantle and said, I'd like to use your building. But really, our history is one that is filled with ups and downs, filled with high, high points and very low places of desperation. And I thought to myself, how interesting, providential, some might say, that God in his goodness as we were planning out this sermon series had Gideon 
be the broken person that we would be talking about today. Because today we're talking about being doubtfully broken and fleecing God. (laughs) Being doubtfully broken and fleecing God. Now, the passages of Scripture that Jane read for us are right in the middle of the story of Gideon. They don't really tell the whole story, but they give us a context for what we're going to talk about today. See, there's this place where Gideon's like, I'm not sure that you really called me. I'm not sure that this is really what I'm supposed to do. I'm not sure that you're really God. And so, in order to make sure things are okay, I'm going to fleece you. I'm going to test you out. And not just once, but twice. And before that happened, God was doing some things in Gideon's life. And after that, God continues to do some things in Gideon's life. But I think it's good for us to recognize right off at the bat that doubt is something that creeps in to all of us. That doubt is part of the human experience. It's part of who we are. That you really can't be a human without at some point in your life having doubt. Emily Dickinson, who's an author, a famous author, put it this way. She said, we both believe and disbelieve a hundred times in an hour, which keeps believing nimble. That was a good way to look at it. We both believe and disbelieve a hundred times in an hour, but that keeps believing nimble. Philip Yancey, who's a Christian author, said this, that doubt is the skeleton in the closet of faith. And he says what you have to do with a skeleton is pull it out of the closet and look at it and recognize this about skeletons, that they're made not to be hidden, but they're made to put meat on and muscle and stew in to be able to build up and hold the body of faith. That in fact, without doubt, faith might fall short. So what we want to do today is look at Gideon, this doubtfully broken man, and we want to see and gather in for ourselves what doubt does for us and how God uses it to make beautiful faith. We're going to do that by looking at basically the rest of the story, the things that happened before. So Midian, who at one time was a favored of the Israelite nation. As a matter of fact, Moses' father-in-law is a Midianite. But now, what they're doing is they're gathering around all these little tribes and all these little nations, and they're deciding that it's important to take over their farmland, to take over their crops, to take over their, uh, their livestock. And so they're coming in all the time to all these little different tribes and all these little different countries and taking them over. And so Israel sees it, and they recognize it, and they know that Midian is coming towards them. And they're nervous about it. They don't want to see that happen. And God, first of all, sends them a prophet and says, you've got to get things right. (laughs) You've got to turn back to me. But they don't. And Midianites are waiting to come in. As a matter of fact, we find Gideon when he's called by God in a wine press, threshing wheat. You don't thresh wheat. You don't get your wheat ready in a wine press. You get it ready in a threshing floor. 
but he's hiding because he knows that if he's out in the open and the Midianite soldiers see him, they'll swoop down and they'll grab up all his grain. So he's really brave. Not. He's nervous and scared. And he's there. And this is what it says. An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. <laughs> he's hiding. But God sees him differently. So what does it look like to have doubt? Where does it spring from? What is the path of doubt? I think the first path of doubt, quite obviously, I think, is mistrust. Mistrust. That's what happens here for Gideon. He's doubtful. He says, you are a mighty man of valor. And Gideon says to him, please, sir, listen, if the Lord is with us, why then is all this happening to us? He says, you tell me that God says I'm a mighty man of valor. Let me say back to you, where's the Lord? If he really is for us, where has he been? Why is this happening to us? God isn't with us, it looks like, to me, is what Gideon says. And so there's a mistrust there. Something has been broken. And experientially, when we look at the Israelite nation, for sure, we can say, trust has been broken. Like, why would they trust? Why would Gideon trust that God's there? Here's this Midianite horde waiting to come down and steal their food. Come and take over their livelihoods, and their lives. Really, the question of mistrust is, who are you? That's what we say to God. Who are you? Are you someone I can trust? Someone I can hold on to? And when we think about it, and we look at our world, we look at a macro sort of way, and we read the news, and we hear about attacks in Las Vegas, and attacks in Somalia, and we hear about attacks in London and New York City. And it's hard to say. Who are you? Do you have the world in control? Do you know what's going on? There are many songs that have been written about this idea that God is far off or distant or not even present. And rightfully so. Experientially, we can look at it broadly and go, man, what is going on? but even more so in our personal lives. Even, even more so in our own living experience. We have a sister that we don't talk to anymore because a relationship has been broken. We have family that are ill and they have fallen down. We have a job that we love that no longer is our job because we were let go, not by anything that we did, but because somebody else did it. The economy just seemed to bomb and all of a sudden, I don't have money to live the way that I like to live or wanted to live. Sometimes it's by our own doing. We make stupid decisions and we get hurt and the consequences of those weigh heavy on us. And so with Gideon, we can cry out, really? <laughs> and so there's a sense of mistrust that comes. That's how doubt begins to seep in. But remember, Yancey has said, doubt is the skeleton in the closet of faith. So don't just push those aside. Don't just hold on to those experiential things that make you think, maybe God, who are you? That, ask that question. Because you'll find out God answers. What's the second way that doubt comes in? 
to our lives. Well, the second way we find right after this. He says to him, where have you been? Did you? And then, and then the answer is, did not the Lord bring you out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel for the, from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Look, God says, I'm sending you. So this is who I am. I'm the one who sends you. I'm the one who knows you. I'm the one who pursues you. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The second way that doubt seeps into our hearts, the second way that doubt comes in is by our status or our perceived reality, the way that we look at ourselves. It really is a question of, who am I? So if mistrust is a question of, who are you? This idea of status bringing about doubt is a question of, who am I? It's a belief that we're unworthy to be loved by God. It's a belief that we're not quite good enough to do the things that God maybe calls us to do. That our life is destined for punishment, not because of some cosmic mistake, but because we deserve it. And there's so many of us that walk around in our lives with a perception of ourselves that we're unlovable and that we are um, not pursued by anybody, that we are lower than low. And it happens very quickly. Experientially, something happens in our lives that just sort of ticks. We get a phone call that's not a good phone call. We get a speeding ticket when... We don't have $200 to pay that, by the way. Huge fines for speeding tickets. Found that out just recently. Wow. Didn't know that. Also didn't know that if you don't pay it on time, you get another fine. Wow. Bad news. Sorry, I just needed to confess. <laughs> but what happens? I don't have $200. I don't have $400. Oh, well, I deserve it. I did it to myself. It's my own fault. <sighs> Things just never go my way. And we have this self-perceived identity that is one of lowness. One that we're not the child of God. One that we're not pursued by something far greater and majestic and wonderful. But one that says, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I'm going to go eat worms. That's what... Gideon does there. He says, who am I? Who am I? Now somehow, the angel of the Lord encourages Gideon and gets him to move up. And Gideon says, okay, I'll do this thing. And he goes into his house and he, he, he says, I want you to stay here because I need to test you a little bit more. We didn't even read this testing part. And he says, stay here, I'm going to go get food for you, and I'm going to bring it to you, and you prove yourself to me. And he brings out goat, and he brings out some uh, cakes, and an angel of the Lord says, put it on that stone right there. And he touches it with a stick, and it burns up. Remember, we were talking about illusionists last week. That's a trick. Boom, gone. And he recognizes and realizes, oh, you are the Lord. You are the one who's in control of the universe. You are the one who knows me completely. And he goes and he moves and he does something. What does he do? He goes and he grabs the Baal idols. 
and he tears them down. And immediately after he tears down the idols to Baal, that were his dad's idols, by the way, that's brave, does it at night, not so brave, pulls them down, people outside go, what's going on? Somebody tore down the idols. They, they tore them down. I think that's the third way that doubt creeps into our lives. The third way that doubt creeps into our lives is the perceptions of other people's reaction. See, because oftentimes, when we begin this sort of journey with God, when then we begin to believe that God is something that is a personal God, that He is in pursuit of us, a loving, redemptive pursuit of us, that He wants us to live in wholeness and whole relationship with Him, with ourselves, with all others, and with place. When we begin to believe that, it changes things about us. It can't help but. We've talked about it here at Fremantle Church, about what it does to our posture, that we have a posture of welcome, that we welcome all people, that we have a posture of for, because if God is for us, no one can be against us, and so we're for everyone. That we have a, a culture and a posture of care, because God's the creator of all things. He's the creator of the world, and we're called to care for it, and love it, and hold it, just as Christ holds it. And so when we begin to recognize that in our own life, it causes us to do things differently. We move from being self-centered to other-focused. And when we're other-focused, we act different. Because the rest of the world, a lot of times, is more self-focused. And so the question becomes for us in this doubt is, who are they? Who are those around us? That's what happened. They go crazy. They sort of get whacked out about the fact that their idols have been demolished. I, I want to stop and camp there just for a minute. No irony in that statement since we're talking about camps. Let me just say this, that idols that are within our lives, and all of us have idols, all of us have things that we put in place of this whole relationship with God, this whole relationship with ourselves and others in place. This, we, we all have things that we think are going to give us everything that we need when in fact they won't and oftentimes we think they're external things like an Audi an Audi's my idol I want an Audi car I think they're really cool I think I'd look cool driving one maybe the only way I'd look cool but the reality is it's not the Audi that's my idol the reality is status and pleasure I would have fun driving it and I'd have status because people would go that guy's got an Audi you see, there's things that are within us, these idols. But here's the thing about idols. They deal with ease, and they deal with the instant. Idols are pragmatic things that we somehow have the ability to control. See, that bell idol that was built? It was built. It was made. It was controlled and easily brought down. Perhaps the way it looks in our lives, those of us who have hung out in church a lot, is that it's a system of faith. That idol is a system of faith, that if we do everything according to the way God has said it to do, or the way we're perceiving God is saying it to do, that if we tick all the boxes, if I do everything right, then I'll get what I request, my prayers will be answered, my life will be happy, and everything will be good. But in fact, it's within those idols, those things of ease and instance, those things of control and pragmatism that we find bondage. 
They're the very things that take over our lives. Let's just go back to the Audi. Because it's pretty innocuous, really. But if you think about it, if my desire for status and pleasure became so important to me that I did everything I possibly could do to be able to acquire an Audi. That might mean that I need to change my occupation so I could make a little bit more money. And that job maybe will take me away from my family more so I won't get to see them grow up or help my wife or, in fact, enjoy the pleasure of cooking that I do so much because I'm busy doing a job and getting that work done. And then let's say that I get there and they say you need a down payment and I don't have a down payment for it. And so I've got to figure out where I'm going to steal money from in my account to be able to do that. So I don't buy my kids clothes and I let them look rough because that Audi is more important. And we start eating beans all the time, just beans every day, all day long in order to be able to get that Audi and only the Audi. And eventually, I get enough money for the down payment, and I go, and I have to have my dad, who's in America, co-sign for me because my credit's not so good, and so I put him at risk as well, and I get the Audi. And I drive off the lot, and all of a sudden, boom, I smash it. Where's my happiness gone? Now I'm enslaved to paying a bill on an Audi I'll never be able to drive. Take a moment. Allow that to extrapolate itself out in your life. Think about those things that seem so instant and so easily controllable. Those systems that you've put into place that you look at in your life and you say, yes, this will make me happy. This will make me whole. And recognize how they move you to a place of bondage. Gideon is fearful and doubtful because he's not sure who God is, he's not sure who he is, and he's not sure about the people around him. They've proven to himself to be unreliable, and he's unreliable, and they're all unreliable. But here's what we need to recognize, and I need to recognize it. That if we move away from our idols, the God of the universe, the one who says, I am, he is the one who says, I am with you, you are in me. He is this uncontrollable, uncontainable, supernatural wholeness. Truth above truth. Light above light. Glory above glory. Mercy above mercy. Grace upon grace. Steadfast love beyond steadfast love. He moves us in a direction and gathers us in. And here's the beautiful part of it. So after he tears that down, Gideon is asked to say, go take on Midian. <laughs> and so he goes and he gathers up men. He says, all the men who want to fight Gideon, come and fight Gideon with me. I mean, come and fight Midian, the Midianites with me. And they do, and God says, that's too many people. And he kind of weeds them down from over 30,000 to 300. Listen, God understands the value of human doubt. Hear this again. God understands the value of human doubt. What does he do? Gideon's sitting there. It's the evening time. And God says to him, hey, I've given these people over to you. 
And as an aside, let me say, if you want to talk about what that means and the violence that's in the Old Testament versus the love that we see in Christ, I'm more than happy to have a conversation about that with you at some point. But he says, I've given these people over to you. But if you're still afraid, why don't you go down and listen to them? You see, God values our human doubt. He recognizes that there are places in our lives and our hearts where we struggle, where it is hard for us to move forward. And what God does is he comes in and he says, go listen. Listen to what I'm doing. Listen to know that I have gone before you, that I am ahead of you, that I know what is coming up, and that I will provide the way for you, that I have overtaken things. If you don't trust that even in that story that God is okay with your doubt, I want you to go to Thomas, an apostle, who's not there when Jesus first appears after his resurrection. And he says to the guys, I'm not going to believe this until I'm able to touch Jesus. And Jesus comes in and goes, boom, ha, you better trust me now. No, that's not what he does. He comes in and he says, Thomas, touch my hand. Thomas, touch my side. He values our doubts. He recognizes it as humans. There's a Christian writer named Frederick Buchner, theologian. It's impacted my life a lot. This is what he said. Without somehow destroying me in the process, how could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? If there is no room for doubt, then there is no room for me. What he's saying is this God that's amazing and all-encompassing, this thing that is unattainable and ungraspable, the one who created us and knows us individually by name, particularly about who you are, if he revealed himself without allowing us to have a place of doubt, we would be so undone. Jesus encounters a man who has a daughter who has a spirit that is within her that's causing her to be crazy. And Jesus says to him, do you believe? And he says to him, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I believe, help me in my unbelief. Gideon says here, I believe, can I go listen to the troops? Help me in my unbelief. Let me say this, if, if you're here today and you have had this ongoing sort of relationship with God that you feel like there are more downs than there are ups, when you feel like there are more times that you doubt that he is ever present or that he longs for you or that he's pursuing of you, hear me. You can pray, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And he answers that. But that your doubt is not the thing that he's most worried about. As a matter of fact, he values it. And if you're here today and you've built a system that works pretty well for you, and you think to yourself, I don't have any doubt anymore, I'm so sure. Let me just ask you and challenge you to say, where's your surety lie? Is it lying in the system that you've built? Is it lying in the works that you do? 
Or is it lying in the God who's ever pursuing and ever loving, ever graceful, ever truth, holding you? Because if it's your system, it will fall short. It always does. Father, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Praise God. Praise God that we are all doubtfully broken. Each and every one of us. And how good it is to be able to admit it and bring the, clo- bring the skeleton out of the closet so that Christ can build his body upon it. And praise God that he did not leave us alone in it. He gave us each other. Walking whether we see each other every Sunday or whether it's been 35 or 40 years since we've seen each other. That God in His goodness somehow knitted us together deeply in the knowledge of His love for us. That we are one body called together to believe in this God that is ever pursuing with us. Don't doubt that your doubt can bring you close to the Father who values it and says to you, I hear that you believe. I will help you in your unbelief. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. We ask that if these words are not your words, that they will burn up. But if they are your words, that they will take root in our hearts and that they will bear good fruit for you. It's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.